0: All right, everybody. Thank you once again for tuning in to V-Radio. Today, I am honored to have Brett Weinstein. Uh, Brett Weinstein has become kind of a very public figure on a lot of issues um, that I agree with. And in particular, I would say one of the things I would say that sticks out to me is, I guess I'll ask before I like spit this out, but Brett, would you say that as far as politics, would you consider yourself left-leaning on a lot of things?
1: Uh, this is a tough question it really depends on your definitions uh, i have considered myself not only left leaning but i call myself a reluctant radical which is right. to say, i believe only radical change can save us and i would say i i try to be an enlightened liberal i recognize that liberals tend to make a an error where they see a problem to be solved and they don't see the unintended consequences that will flow from the solution so I'm I'm frightened by radical change but I know that we need it and so yes I, I there's no question um, I, I uh, I'm a left-leaning and I consider myself a progressive
0: and I kind of feel the same way I mean it's and the funny thing is is that I kind of cultivated an audience that actually has a lot of right leaning people in it. And a lot of them have said to me that due to my constructive ability to communicate with them, that they've revised some of their views on things. I think I would like it if we would stop using left and right as a straitjacket and more like maybe a, a description, a, a means of communication of, Hey, I kind of feel this way, but not something that you have to be defined as something that, um, I remember thinking when you were on with, uh, Joe Rogan with, uh, Um, Jordan Peterson was that it feels like our politics have to be packaged and sometimes your package doesn't make any sense. So for example, I'm pro gun rights, but I'm also pro healthcare. So where do I go? Apparently I, that, that role doesn't exist. So they eat both sides will hate you if you do that. But I first want to start by asking a question I ask all guests going back to when I started doing this in 2008 is, what was the precipice moment for you that made you decide to go from just being perhaps an observer of world events to being more of an activist, even if you don't use that word to determine it, you know, to, to describe yourself?
1: Um, I haven't had that moment yet. Uh, and I know that's going to sound odd, but I, I think what I am is not plugged in to the same agreement about how to make sense of the world and what to do with the product as most people are. And my feeling is I was signed up for an agreement with civilization when I was born, right? My ancestors were hunter-gatherers as all of ours were, but I can't go and hunt and gather and opt out of civilization if I want to. That's literally not even legal, much less possible. So, in essence, I have been uh, signed up to be part of this collective effort, and that means that civilization has obligations to me and to everyone else that it signed up, which is to say, to all of us. Sure. And civilization is in breach of that contract. It is forcing me to do things without anteing up the prerequisites, mm-hmm. and So in effect, I feel like I've been drafted into a battle. If I want to be a good person and a scientist, and I want to do the kind of work that a scientist does where I pursue knowledge, I follow the evidence where it leads, I say what it is I think I've discovered, I change my mind when the evidence leads me to understand that I had something wrong. If that's what I want to do, I can't do it. And I can't do it because something else has... um, swept across the landscape and made it impossible and i i guess what i'm saying is i do find myself in a battle fighting for people's rights to live their rights to informed consent for example and so you could call me an activist but i would say i'm just doing what a decent person does when they discover that they're in a world uh being controlled against their interests
0: and that's a very good answer and i actually feel exactly the same way which is one of the reasons why i'm glad that this conversation is taking place is that i feel that particularly among left-leaning people this kind of conversation that's sensible is getting harder and harder to have um uh, for example uh, i had great conversations with derek jensen about this he said he interviewed you and we discussed the fact that um he's even now having to revise a lot of things because he got essentially excommunicated from the leftist anarchist movements just because he said controversial things like we should still have laws and prohibitions against rape, you know, so they had to turn on him for that. Um, and he's also like one of the things that got us to bond was just that it seems like the left is like losing its ability to even think. And when he brought up science, that was a big part of it. For me, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Jacques Fresco. Uh, he, was a, so. he was a, he uh, was a, well, when he passed away, he was over hundred years old. He lived during the great depression and he was very big on science and reason. And redesigning our culture in a way that is uh, both sustainable, but also, you know, with humanity as like the primary, um, you know, factor. And I'll send you some information about him because I think you would really like his work. And I remember actually you mentioning at one point, uh, I think it was during a Joe Rogan podcast about being part of a group of scientists who were interested in trying to help figure out a way that society could function in a, a way that makes sense. So um, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, Jesus, I hope he's heard of Jacques. Um he runs something called the Venus Project. Uh, unfortunately, he's since passed, but his wife is still there. Um, well, I guess they wouldn't call her that, but <laughs> they didn't okay. use that term. But um, if you ever want to talk to Roxanne Meadows, I think you guys would have a great conversation That's who she was, with, who he was with. But
1: I, I do have some awareness of the Venus Project. I have seen it, but I haven't delved deeply. And the movement that you're talking about is it flies under the moniker of Game B. Mm-hmm. And I will also say that uh, my wife, Heather Hying, and I, my wife is also a biologist, uh, in our book that we uh, recently published, very popular book, uh, became a New York Times bestseller, the f- The last chapter is actually about what we call the fourth frontier, and the idea of the fourth frontier is that we will have to architect a stable and abundant future, that this is not a utopian fantasy that this is no more unthinkable than the idea of having a house in which the temperatures are always spring-like indoors Um, but we're going to have to we're going to have to um, navigate our way to that future otherwise we will perish in the ebb and flow of human conflict over limited resources
0: exactly that's the point that i tried to make to people many times is that it's It's not even just a question. I'd say if there was a utopian fantasy, it would be that we could just endlessly expand and continue to just endlessly consume without any consequences or thoughts of the future. But That is is, is
1: such a good point. Yes, that is the utopian fantasy, is um, the classical thing that we are presented by uh, uh, modern economists. Well, and one of the things that I think
0: led to me coming into conflict with my own audience, like my, I guess, evergreen moment, so to speak, was that the woke ideology found its way into different leftist movements that i was part of and for fresco if such a thing is to is to work logic and reason and the scientific method are at the core you have to have these things it's not it's not a, like an option you can't think irrationally you can't base yourself on emotion if you're going to have a society that's going to be based you know in science and actually paying attention to the true laws of things and i've noticed that um, I was at the Occupy movement, and Me there too. was a and there was a moment in question where all of a sudden, the focus stopped being about we are the ninety nine percent and became about the, well, we are the the thirty three percent or the ten percent because we're the the trans people, the gay people, the black people that like, and not that there's anything wrong with being any of those things, but there was a dramatic shift in the way Occupy felt when that happened. And, because I was part of multiple Occupy camps, it was like having a control and an experiment because in Occupy Detroit, the wokeness just took over and it became very unproductive. We just spent too much time analyzing how, you know, oppressed each individual was and instead of getting work done. So in in contrast, Occupy Flint was also just as diverse, but we didn't talk about that stuff. So we had nice structures that were warm throughout the year. We had solar panels powering our electronics. There's just so much less crap was wasted on doing teach-ins about how we should actually all secretly hate each other, even if we're on the same side. And so there's actually a video I did specifically because you can watch wherein there's a um, statistics you can track online. Whereas in when the conversations in the media started changing away from wealth, in you know disparity from the bank corruption from all of those things and into well now we need to discuss race and sex and gender and in all of these things and those are the most important thing and there's actually a quintessential moment when hillary clinton is running against bernie sanders and she's saying during his speech you know well bernie wants to break up the big banks and we could do that tomorrow but what would that do for racism in this country what would that do for <laughs> you know, you know, the LGBTQ community in this country, like literally just goes down the line and gets the crowd to scream, no, every time, nothing, and, you know. Um, and that was when I started to kind of put it together. I was like, wait a minute, what the hell, you know, and Bernie won Michigan, but he lost Flint and Detroit, which made no sense to me. And so I went and looked on my old Occupy forums, and I had a lot of people saying, well, I'd really like to vote for Bernie, but I can't bring myself to vote for a white male. So (laughs) instead we have to vote for Hillary Clinton who voted for the, you know, pushed for the crime bill and voted, you know, supported NAFTA and like called black youth super predators. And as opposed to the guy who marched with Martin Luther King and, you know, it's like those things were not as important to them. And that's when I realized, okay, this is not only do I feel like this is not an accident, I feel it's socially engineered. I feel that they were trying to destroy us. There was one other critical moment in in time that I would say happened right before that was Ron Paul called on the Tea Party to say, hey, we have common enemies. You should go talk to Occupy and let's do joint reactions to the banks and to corruption. And then that's, I think, when they really had to get rid of us because, and and obviously the woke stuff is going to drive off any right-leaning person right away. And so in any case, I would also ask... uh, something else that i kind of stumbled on and it's weird really for somebody on the left to look at this but um have you ever studied yuri Bezmenov and his lectures about ideological subversion i would not say studied i would
1: say i've watched it like, okay uh, like most of us
0: you get to the point where you're dealing with uh him saying like real information no longer matters to them you know you, you, he's like you, i could take them by force to go look at the concentration camps and they would still be in denial um you know and he just he went on to speak he's like despite an abundance of information being offered to them they cannot come to logical and rational conclusions anymore um and that kind of clicked into my head too because and that kind of brings me to my first question which has to do with evergreen and there's one specific moment in that whole escapade that i wish got more attention because i think it breaks it down to the core but before i get into it that into that specific moment i would also point out have you have you ever seen that slide that was put on the uh african-american museum of history or whatever or the smithsonian that literally describes the scientific method rational thinking um you know critical thinking as whiteness Are you uh, yeah, familiar
1: with- I, yeah i have and you know it's it's maybe one of the iconic versions of a trope that i've run into a thousand times in a thousand different forms right and every time i see it i think your enemies couldn't possibly have done anything more effective than get you to embrace a belief like
0: that exactly and that brings me to a moment and that unfortunately when benjamin Boyce did this he only had audio but it seems like it's right after some of the initial confrontations during your inquisition where you hear just talking to a couple of students and one of them was a female and she was just kind of nicely trying to hear you out and then these other students kind of figure out wait a second this person's not you know is breaking out of the spell of the witch hunt we need to get over there right away but there's one moment in particular where you're discussing with them And this guy screams at you, you have to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of communication. And I was like, what the hell did he just say? And then suddenly that slide started to pop into place. And, you know, so I guess I I try to tell people to watch the entire documentary because I think it's really important to watch every single bit, even if they just take it a piece at a time, because that was a, to me a pinnacle moment that i think if nothing else that happened to you at evergreen should get more attention i'd like to make t-shirts of that quote specifically because i think that's really at the essence of what scares me i'm a left-leaning activist my my viewers know that but i don't really spend a lot of time on left versus right right now i'm on thinking versus not thinking i think that's a far bigger problem for humanity in general we can argue about health care or whatever later. Um, but we can't even come to any kind of reasonable conclusions if this is what's up. So I guess, can you take me, first of all, back to that moment and what implications you feel that insanity of stop demanding we use logic and reason?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I couldn't have told you that that moment was actually captured. I've watched all of Benjamin Boyce's documentary Um, but there's so much stuff from that era that I don't really even remember what was captured and what's just in in my recollection. But I could tell you exactly where I stood during that interaction. Uh, I don't know who I was talking to, but I could tell you pretty much what they looked like. It's really almost like it was was yesterday. And the moment really captures one of the things that I think the experience... If you weren't there, you don't realize how ironic everything was. Everything was not just crazy and weird, it was upside down. And so, you know, this, this was moments after my famous confrontation in the hall with 50 students that I had never met, literally, not met a single one of them. They stormed into the building, they confronted me and my students, they demanded my resignation, they accused me of racism, I tried to reason with them. Um, I think I actually succeeded briefly with two people in the crowd who engaged me, and then the crowd took over and made sure the conversation ended so that that progress would not um, be durable. And then the police showed up, and I didn't know that they had showed up. Uh, Somebody, I think it was one of my students, must have called them, but I didn't know that the police were involved at all. It wouldn't have been my instinct to call them. And... So the students who had confronted me flooded out of the building to go confront the police. And these two students were left in the hallway and I don't remember, they mu- I don't know if I walked over to them or they walked over to me, but somehow we ended up in a conversation and it was much, much less charged. And the, the point, the, the irony here is that my classroom was a place where a highly diverse group of students were having a conversation about why humanity functions the way it does, including things like why racism exists, why it evolves, and therefore what that implies about what we can do about it, since most of us agree it's a bad thing, right? So those conversations were taking place in a, uh, a nurturing, safe environment in which students were feeling rewarded for engaging them logically and carefully, even though, obviously, they are about matters of deep human suffering and need. And what I realized months later, I actually realized it as a result of what Mike Nana put together in his excellent three-part documentary on the Evergreen Meltdown. What I realized was what the students who had confronted me, the ones who had... Demanded my resignation, what they thought was going to happen. That had not been clear to me initially. It, the whole thing didn't make sense. They expected my students to defect. That in 2017, the idea of a bunch of students accusing a white male professor of racism, the next logical thing would be for that professor's students to start shouting about all of the wrongs that they had suffered, right? And that didn't happen, because my students knew me very well, and they knew that this didn't make any sense at all. And so to a person, they stood by me, and they stood by my wife, who was literally Evergreen's most popular professor. And so that conversation in the hallway was a return to the mode that had existed in that building a minute before the students showed up right, a minute before the protesting student showed up. It was an educational context. And then this guy breaks in and says that I have to stop doing this, that, and the other. And the point is that is the other voice. And you can compare these two things, right? Which mode would you rather be in? Would you rather be in a mode where we agree racism is bad, and now let's talk about what its actual nature is with an eye towards what we can do about it? Or would you rather be shouting about how, Math and logic and reason uh, are white tools, and we need to abandon them and go back to other ways of knowing. Right? It's a slam dunk. The winning team is the one that actually takes the best tools and figures out what to do with them, not not the team that rejects those tools. Right? It's obvious, and so that irony pervaded everything, and it you know it continues to this day. We have not gotten over the idea that the right thing to do, if you are concerned about inequality, the right thing to do is to democratize the good tools, not forbid anyone to use them.
0: Absolutely. And I think that um, at the core of what disturbed me about all of that going on, now just for happenstance, I had studied religious persecution and what inquisitions and witch trials look like and how people get to them, you know, it's, and it's not that different than how people get convinced to participate in a Holocaust. There's very, and the funny thing is this, and I I tell my left-leaning friends this all the time. And I also tell the right-leaning listeners because they will quote George Orwell on a regular basis without right, realizing that he was literally a socialist who would participated in the anarcho-communist rebellion in Spain, um, that it was actually, uh, Stalin working alongside Hitler, who slaughtered those people, you know, who were, you know, successful anarcho-communists for a while. But he, would, he wrote 1984 and he wrote Animal Farm as a warning to fellow leftists of this can happen if you are not careful. And, and one of the core things that he pointed out was that if, if you get to a point where people are trying to eliminate objective truth, That's a sign that an authoritarian regime is trying to take control of your society. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. That's what postmodernism is all about, as Jordan Peterson goes on about frequently, and he's absolutely right to do so, is about, no, no, things may not actually be that. It may not be two plus two equals four. It may not, because we really need it to be that way, because we're going to try to change society into an awful lot of irrational ideas. So we can't have you going around telling people that they should be rational. That's, that's, That's too dangerous. You know and they don't put those things together and now we're raising a this is one of the things yuri Bezmenov was trying to warn about was that they're going to invade your educational system and they're going to you know indoctrinate whole generations of people and unfortunately i think many people on the left because anything that's from a communist you know red scare perspective they just kind of throw it in the trash don't want to hear about it i'm like no you really need to look at this um and i even tell because Antifa, for example, believes that they're an anarcho-communist group, I'm like, why are you guys tolerating people standing next to you with Stalin flags and Mao flags? Because those people would kill you, and I was like, you would not want to live under them, um, you know. And and it's funny to me is that they they don't recognize that no, that doesn't mean we don't pay attention to what Soviet you know, in, you know ideological subversion looks like because it's not good for any free people. It doesn't matter whether you believe you should cooperate. Um, economically or compete with one another economically, this is not a good ideology. Um, and so in any case, I, what worries me the most beyond anything else, as I said, this is why it's my major motive, is that people are losing the ability to think. They're losing the ability to communicate with one another. Um, the tribalism is really out of control. And you mentioned that, you know, people are not getting into why racism, racism exists. When I The funny thing is when I finally exposed my children to racism or actually had to explain it was because they overheard me talking about it on my show, not because they had run into it. And it wasn't because of the fact that they weren't in a diverse environment. My children participate in wrestling and boxing, which are extremely diverse. You know, our boxing gym was so diverse. We even had a Palestinian and a Jew in the same gym, along with blacks and Asians and Hispanics. So when I finally had to explain to them what it was, they thought it was the most absurd, preposterous thing they would ever heard. Why would anybody care? That's so stupid, you know. But when I did explain it to them, I had them watch the film *Gangs of New York*, because *Gangs of New York* has all kinds of racism, but there's only Caucasians in the film, and it's because it was, you know, the Irish were the, you know, the the Mexicans coming to steal our jobs, you know, they could, when they were fleeing the potato famine. Um, I decided I was going to look at this because I'd always kind of felt sociologically that i had a i had a sense when i was a little kid of sociological ideas and it actually drives you nuts because you can see a level of social interaction that not everybody looks at but i was like man you know after i had to get done talking to these activists and then i go to the boxing gym i have to spend like 10 minutes on like just turning off the crap that they put in my head so that i can go back to just this is our boxing coach he happens to be a black man this is their best sparring partner happens to be arabic You know, and just turn off all of that nonsense. And I was like, it seems like there's almost a primitive, like subconscious waiting to be activated instinct to protect yourself if your group is being attacked. And you're an evolutionary biologist, so you know all about this. But I think that a lot of other people don't know about this. And so I set out to look into it. And I found, oh, well, look at this. There's science about this. And I was going to do one video about it. And then when I started looking, they were like, holy crap, there's like 30 articles on this topic of why you don't just attack somebody's in-group if you want them to stop being racist or sexist or whatever, <laughs> because you're going to get the opposite reaction. And that it's, there's a scientific principle behind it as to why this doesn't work. Um, you know. And I think that I kind in addition to the fact that I, I also studied about riots and what they do to the local economies where they happen. And the fact that people are defending them. And I was like, I started to come to the conclusion. I was like, you know, I don't want to be a tinfoil hat necessarily. But it almost feels like whoever is putting together all of this racial, gender, everything, activism is diabolically racist.
1: Yep. Because it's, everything it's they want. sabotaging
0: Right. Would destroy the people that they're supposedly supposed to be helping. And 100%. And so I also interviewed Daryl Davis. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him. Absolutely. And that's a guy who disarms your racism like a bomb and that's how it works you know you humanize yourself to klu klux Klan members and then they go you know what this is dumb why am i doing this you know so i guys, could you give me some of your because you you're a scientist in evolutionary biology could you give some of the examples and the reasons as to why these group instincts happen in your subconscious and how people should
1: be aware of them sure i must tell you i uh i wish i was more skilled at this because if i could weave together about six or seven things that have come up in this conversation already and i could show you how they relate to each other it it paints a pretty detailed picture of where we are why we're here and what it implies and i just want to start though by pointing out your riff on left versus right of course I feel a lot of that too, but I also think what we need is a better set of definitions that allow us to see that it's not like we've just gotten over left or or, or left and right. That something else has happened, and it tells it tells us where we are. So, in effect, the world, the cosmopolitan world, that doesn't give a damn about your race. That was a liberal innovation. Now, it has ancient roots. I mean, you'll find it in the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you'll find it in the Golden Rule. But you know, the Golden Rule, which actually doesn't start with Jesus either. There's, there's a, a Rabbi Hillel version of it as well. It's, it's a discovery in many different cultures. But, but the point is there's a struggle in us between two competing biological drives. One of them is to compete on behalf of our genetic lineage. That's where the racism comes from. The other is to cooperate because it's productive and to ignore things like lineage. That's where the cosmopolitan thing comes from. Liberals had this right and they won. And it is now rare to encounter somebody who is an actual racist if you define the term properly. If you define the term uh, loosely, then you can find them everywhere right but really what you're doing is you're misdiagnosing ignorance which is common to all of us with racism which is a desire for one group to win out over others and so my my point would be we do not understand how well we've done against the idea of racism even people who have biases in them that are racially based don't want to live in that world everybody resonates with <laughs> the idea of a world in which you're hanging out with people who look different, have different experiences, you know, an an interesting and diverse group of people. That's way cooler than a group of people who looks just like you. And so the point is liberals won the battle. Conservatives are now conserving the gains that liberals won. And the left has abandoned those gains in an effort to go back to a prior world in which nothing matters more than race. And this is entirely absurd. It is self-defeating. It is cynical in many of their cases. And those of us who have understood why it is better to live in a society that is not racist, it's not just nicer, it's better, it's more productive, it's more generative. Those of us who get that have to fend this off with every tool we've got. We have to defend the world that had gotten over racism and was working on getting over ignorance. And we're not doing a good job of it at all. Um, We are allowing the the foxes to guard the hen house. And I also have to wonder, the the degree to which we are self-sabotaging the important gains we've made is so great that I also have to wonder if someone has not seeded the idea of self-sabotage into our society in some way that we don't understand.
0: And that's where I think um, Yuri Bezmodov's lectures about ideological subversion come in. Um, And not everything he said came true, Um, but I honestly do believe in addition to that, you have to look at the Chinese Maoist revolution and specifically the ideological revolution where people are like, more or less witch hunting each other for their purity. I think it's very similar. And unfortunately, for the left, again, like I said, most of them just kind of roll their eyes if you bring up anything negative about anything communist, because they assume that that means you're going down this red rabbit hole of, you know, it, you know, just the idea of sharing. This is what I would like to talk to Jordan Peterson about, is that these communities didn't fail because sharing doesn't work. They failed because of these insane, you know, identity politics. And I think you would agree with that part. But it's Wait, like well, I,
1: I wouldn't. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. Oh, go ahead. Um. There, we now know, or should know at least, why communism doesn't work. And the answer to why communism doesn't work, if you can grok it, can actually tell you how you would get the benefits that are supposed to flow from communism built into a system that's actually stabilizable. And the basic point is sharing doesn't work because all you've said is sharing. The question is, what is the system in which things are being shared? And does the game theory support the continuation of that or does it support parasitism?
0: Well, allow me to clarify. Sure. Um, More to the point was to say that, unfortunately, now we're in a scenario where if you even talk about sharing that equals millions of people dying. And I I think that that oversimplifies what happened. fresco for example would talk about sharing but like you have to have a scientific system set up so that that actually theoretically could work um another thing i think would be it works better in small scales like there's a a commune uh the twin oaks commune they've been there for 30 years you know and they just they have an understanding it's a social contract that we work together to support one another and it ends up working like more like a family farm you know the family takes care of the farm they take care of each other you know you get these families that have like like the the main couple probably had like 12 kids and then they all, you know, collectively cultivate a piece of land and work on it. Do, do I think that you can just have insane levels of authoritarian central planning? No, I don't think that works necessarily. Um, <laughs> so I guess that's where I was trying to get at.
1: Well, so so look, I I may or may not be saying what you think I'm saying. I mm-hmm. agree with you that the thing that we call communism informally works at very small scales. I mean, in fact, we all do it natively except those of us who are really broken right a family has lots of socialism and communism built into it that's part of the structure and it works great because there is an underlying genetic allegiance that supports it right we don't necessarily think in those terms it's probably not healthy to think in those terms but nonetheless there's a reason that it works in those groups it can also be made to work in a small group of people who aren't closely related but agree to certain things What you can't have is a system that actually attempts to scale up the idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Because in attempting to do that, what you will do is you will punish those who contribute most and reward those who contribute least. Sure. And a system that does that rewards not contributing and it falls apart. So, if you want some if you want the benefits that are supposed to derive from communism to actually show up, you have to make sure that it pays to be a contributor. right? Now, I'm not arguing that the right solution is uh, unfettered capitalism. I mean, sure that's a hard enough thing to define, but the point is capitalism has a strength, which is that it does tend to reward people who contribute. It also rewards people who innovate ways of rent seeking, and so right. um, I'm not defending pure capitalism either. The proper right. system will be a mixture of these two things that borrows from their strengths, and it you know you won't be able to identify you know exactly what it is because it will be a hybrid, you know a hybrid, and it will contain things that aren't uh, described in either of those two systems. But you have to be You're not going to overcome the game theory with wishful thinking. The game theory has to be consistent with the objective if it's going to work. And uh, so the basic point is, look, communism has a scale problem, but that scale problem sets in at such a low number of people that describing communism as a plan for any society is preposterous.
0: Right. And I think that one of the other elements of this that people find out because for example while the the commune twin oaks succeeds it's not for everybody i think a lot of kids who are now carrying maoist flags or whatever don't recognize that this is not sitting around and collecting a check the the crops don't plant themselves socialism is actually a lot of work if it's going to work correctly and you know there's actually stories about bernie sanders showing up as a young socialist when he was more into that um and People at communes slick would have to take him aside and say, "Hey, we like what you're talking philosophically, but we need to get back to work." <laughs> you know, like they didn't. He didn't understand at first that okay, so yeah, we don't really discuss ideology here because we have work to do. And I think that they they think that that's what they believe is going to happen is that it, people are just going to hand them money and then they can do whatever they want, and that's just not how it works. And I don't. I also want to point out is that I'm not really advocating for that. In so much as what I notice is that. So for even like the the quote unquote democratic socialism or whatever that Bernie and them explain, which I would say is a hybrid, um, usually my conversations with the conservatives usually start like this: they'll say, "Well, we don't want universal health care; that's communism," um, and then they'll say, "We don't want universal college being paid for; that's communism." And I said, and then that same person later on in the conversation will say, "And Bernie keeps lying and saying that Denmark is, you know, is a socialist country." And I said, "So, so what you said earlier was that." you know, universal healthcare and paying for college is socialism. Yes. So that would make us a socialist country, right? Yes. Okay. Well, Denmark has both of those things. So they're not a socialist country, I would agree. However, this either makes you a socialist country or it doesn't. And I think that they were more focused on just trying to discredit the idea that Denmark was what he was advocating for and, and less on really thinking it through.
1: Yeah, you're not having an analytical conversation with them. You're having a conversation that is phrased in analytical language as if it was analytical. Right. Um, But what I would argue is, you know, so much of this can be done well if you spend way more time than it seems like you should have to on the definitions of things and agreeing on the the precepts in the conversation. So I think of um, communism not as a system, because I know it doesn't work as a system, it's self-unstable, right? It either has to be uh, administered at, you know, with the barrel of a gun uh, or it collapses into uh, famine or it evolves into capitalism, right? It just can't be made stable in its pure form. But as an ingredient, it has useful things to deliver, right? In other words, I love the fire department, right? I think it's great that if uh, somebody I love is in trouble, that I can pick up my phone and I can get healthy, strong people who have role played rescue a thousand times to to bail them out. I think that's really cool, and I'm I love that everyone has it and we don't have to source it on the open market. Right? That was a place where that ingredient really improved the uh, the meal. It's not for everything. I don't want the market. I mean, I don't want communism figuring out uh, how to, um, you know, to build my car. Right. Uh, I, know, I know what communist cars look like. They weren't very good, right? I think uh, Elon's doing a pretty decent job of showing us how you make a better car, right? So the question is, where do I need, you know, if communism is salt, and I think, hey, you know, actually, a meal without salt's pretty rotten. Maybe I just want salt. And it's like, well, I don't just want salt. I want a meal and I want the right amount of salt in it. I don't want more. I don't want less. I want the right amount of salt and I want it, you know, added at the right moment in the process and all all of that. So uh, in any case, all all I'm arguing is this is a question of admixture. Very often, I mean, and, you know, there's lots of Pareto principle uh, in the universe for reasons we could talk about, but um, the basic point is what if you could have 80% of the benefit of communism without the spectacular collapse, right? And 80% of the benefits of capitalism uh, without the the uh, the rent-seeking and, and other forms of parasitism, uh, what if you could have them in the same system, right? And the point is, people who are ideological communists wouldn't be happy with that, and people who are dyed-in-the-wool libertarians wouldn't be happy with that, but the rest of us would be ecstatic. right? Right. It would be a good system. It would have lots of the right stuff. And would it be perfectly fair? Nope. But would it be abundant enough that the fact that it wasn't perfectly fair didn't matter? Sure. We could do that. Um, So anyway, better definitions and a proper understanding, which often sounds like belaboring a point that everybody in the room gets, but it turns out that's not the case, right? If you, if you really stare at something that seems fundamental and you feel like you know it backwards and forwards, it's amazing how frequently you'll discover. Actually, there was a nuance in that that I didn't get, and that nuance actually turns out to matter in the end. Right, and
0: I would say that um, it was important to me to be able to have reasonable conversations with people on the right about these things, and that became increasingly difficult as things have gone forward. That's, I guess, is where I was coming from, was to say, all in addition to that, that, I've gotten some of them, for example, to accept the idea that um, maybe they would never vote for Bernie in the primary, but I have a lot of Republican friends that did vote for him in the open primary in Michigan because they realized, you know, in the end, I'd really rather have a guy who at least cares than Joe Biden, you know, and that was something I said, well, I I agree, which is why in the past I've even voted for Republicans. And I think that when I would like to get us to a point is that maybe we could stop being so worried about our tribal monikers, which like if you look at my picture, yes, it's kind of gruesome, but it's, you know, this is beef, you know, beheading the elephant and the donkey. And it's because originally, this country wasn't even meant to have political parties. And it wasn't meant to have, you know, these, these things that you have to obey, like, they, these are like two different religions and political philosophy that you have to obey every aspect of. And it's created kind of an unnatural division that I almost think is by design to keep us fighting over things that they don't even really care about. The super wealthy don't care about abortion. They don't care about, you know, just like you could just insert random thing here. But they want us to care about it because it helps to distract us. And in addition to racism and all the other stuff, it's all just a big distraction. While the super, super wealthy at the very top. And that's something I think that ironically now I'm noticing more and more, especially like some of the Trump supporters they're starting to recognize, wait a minute, maybe those big, huge, like Jeff Bezos types are not our friends. And I'm like, yeah, they're not. You know, That's something the left is not wrong about. You guys should probably look at it because even capitalism doesn't function right under their rule, which is another thing that Yuri Bezmenov tried to point out that doesn't really get as much play from conservatives is that he also said the wealthy will buy the rope that they will be hung with and that their obsession with um, profits can get to the point that it renders capitalism inoperable, which is how you end up with things like the recession, you know, just vast amounts of unemployment, you know, um, and then all of a sudden the radical communists have an in because they can go, well, I got the solution to your problem. You should just come over here and listen to my version of things. And that's what basically, you know, people tend to forget that destroying the economy in the United States was a bipartisan effort between Reaganomics and NAFTA. And that, the super wealthy at the top they don't care about middle-class republicans any more
1: than they care about lower-class democrats well i would argue i mean i agree that you're right we are fighting over we are ironically fighting over things that we agree on right? mm-hmm. if, even you know pick an issue that you think is the most divisive issue uh for americans let's say abortion Turns out we actually overwhelmingly agree. Right. right. Almost all people, some huge fraction in the middle, agree that there's a problem with the idea of abortion in, you know, late in the third trimester, right before birth. And almost all of us agree that there's some right to it very early that isn't the business of the state or anybody else. Right. There are people who would disagree with both of those statements. But the point is, they are a tiny minority, right? Somehow we are battling over something in which there is overwhelming agreement. And actually, as you go issue by issue, it turns out that this is true and has been for a very long time. I, I remember these studies being done during the Reagan administration that illustrated that actually, as much as we were we were sort of narratively divided, there was pretty strong agreement that uh, it would be good to spend more money. Uh, on schools and infrastructure and things like this, that uh, higher taxes on the rich were probably a good idea, right? The, so anyway, there's a there's a report you're probably aware of it, called the Hidden Tribes Report, that actually studied this recently, and it it describes this uh, group of us who agree on the basics as the exhausted middle, right? And it's somewhere between. Uh, high 60% and low 80% of the population which isn't actually interested in a black and white version of the world but we are being forced into the mindset of the fringes on both sides and it's very unhealthy and it does suggest you know again saboteurs couldn't possibly have done better than to get us focus on those kind of differences while uh you know the uh the goods are being stolen out the back um but I would also suggest we are we are in a situation where we're still fighting about solutions that are like you know uh, the state of the art for you know the 18th century, and we need better tools. The the Yuri Bezmenov viewpoint that uh, the rich will um, sow the seeds of their undoing may not be right. Anymore because they have new tools at their disposal that none of us understand, right? We don't understand what it is like to have social media that gives us the impression that we are interacting with large numbers of human beings and therefore can sort of take the temperature of the room and figure out what people think when in fact lots of those people don't exist. Which of those people we encounter is non random, right? So there are new tools at their disposal and they are also capable of wielding their draconian measures much more surgically than they once could right now so the point is let's say we look at the population and it turns out that you know a hundredth of a percent of the population are actually people capable of moving the needle right nobody else has enough influence to change our direction well then maybe you can let people live in peace and do what they want except for the people who could possibly produce change and then you surgically attack them, right? Right. So there's a kind of surgical totalitarianism that isn't going to look like totalitarianism when you look out the window, but it may be much more effective. And in fact, you know, the pandemic is of course revealing all sorts of things about uh, what people will be willing to believe in spite of evidence, what people will be willing to tolerate given uh, fear that they are in a, an epidemiological emergency. And it. I, if we can go back to Orwell here for a second. I, I always, as a, as a young person, looked at Orwell and I thought, you know, this is, this is a brilliant man and this is a beautiful and very thoughtful way of describing the problem, but it has a flaw. And the flaw is, it's too obvious, right? The examples are too transparently nonsensical, such that if that ever really happened, people would see it. And I was dead wrong. Right. I was dead wrong. He was trying to tell us something. And I think, maybe I missed it, maybe he wrote it somewhere. But I think I needed to hear somebody say, look, I know how dumb this sounds if you live in any normal era. When it comes, you'll understand why I wrote it this way.
0: And that's, that. yeah, I would say that makes perfect sense in addition to the fact that, I guess, well, Derek Jensen, when I interviewed him, said that he predicted how the right would go crazy. He did not predict how the left would go crazy. He said that completely hit him by surprise, that it would go to that level of just absolute insanity. Um, And that, you know, I think the Evergreen story really is a, I think a, if you need to t- have, you know, take a look down the looking glass, you know, because that's the other thing is I try to tell friends of mine about this, the ones who don't really think about activism and they're like, oh, this will just blow over. And they don't realize I'm like, no, you don't get it. This is not just one isolated incident. This is happening all over the country. It's organized. You know, I'm like the, the critical race theory stuff. I had Paul Rossi on my show. You might consider bringing him on yours. He was a, teacher who came forward and exposed what they were doing in his classroom and he exposed situations like kids wanted to come up to him and tell him that they supported him but they'd literally look at the security cameras and be scared that they might get in trouble it was like as if they're in a soviet kgb you know right. you know icy situation and and this isn't college kids these are younger kids you know who who supported him and then they felt that way and it, like actually here's a perfect example i think that comes back to your uh um, your background but was like they, they did a flyer that they were circulating in my school system and I'm in this weird situation where I as a left activist am now helping right activists to try to fight critical race theory in my school you know um, these are people who probably have Trump stickers on their car you know who are like hey can you help us with this um, but basically the flyer states that white children and only white children very important that you think only white children and I've seen video presentations that say the same thing, they emphasize that, are essentially born preferring their own race and that this is not something that supposedly happens to all other children. And that was what threw off the scientific alarm for me, like, I don't think so. (laughs) I'd be willing to say that maybe Hispanics, babies prefer Hispanics and, and vice versa, right? And so then I went and looked at the flyer, and then because I actually read scientific documents, I started reading everything they said. And the reality is, is that all the papers in question, first of all, most of the studies literally only tested white children in the first place. So you wouldn't know. And then secondly, they also revealed interesting things like actually. And then one study that one of the ones that's literally quoted on this flyer says that children also prefer people with the same accent over somebody's race. Like it could be a black child. If you're a British child and you're white, you're going to prefer to hang out with the other British child who has an English accent over somebody who doesn't you know, but none of those things are on the flyer, you know, and there's a reason for that. And that's this, you know, like you said earlier, you can't even do science anymore. I think that the the grievance studies affair should absolutely be shocking people. Like this should be something that terrifies them. And when, again, when I try to share that with people, they just kind of roll their eyes, like, Oh, it'll blow over. Like you don't understand. These people are writing textbooks. Like,
1: <laughs> Well, there's a lot there. Um, Go ahead, i First sorry. of all, no, uh, here's the problem. Yeah, people are wired for a tendency to compete on behalf of their lineage against other lineages. That's the sure. most basic evolutionary form of competition. But as I mentioned at, at the top, we are also capable of putting aside the genetic allegiance and participating in something called reciprocal altruism, which then becomes uh, indirect reciprocity. These are the basis for a cosmopolitan society, a race-blind society. It works even better. And so it's not that white kids are or aren't born this way or that all kids are or aren't born this way. We're born with both of these potentials. And the thing is, the reciprocity version works so much better and it's so much more pleasant that it sells itself but where did it happen that's the question it happened in the cosmopolitan west right so to the extent that we are being sold this story the west is evil and we must do away with it in order to get rid of racism the story is almost exactly the opposite the west is not perfect it does have a lot of racism in its history However, it is racism that was getting better rapidly, right? Right. Enough that you don't meet outright racists anymore. You do encounter ignorance, and the ignorance will never completely go away, but it gets smaller if we'll let it. And we are now upending that process and experimenting with going back to a much more racist system. Now, with respect to your point about um, the logic underlying this and whether or not evergreen is just an aberration i i often you know just as you look at some of these things and you wonder uh if our self-sabotage is so thorough that it has to be the result of uh you know someone inducing us to to self-harm i sometimes look at my own experience and i think if i could just get everyone to look through my eyes, to walk in my shoes, then they'd know a lot about where we are and where we're going. Because what's happened to me really tells the story. You know, Evergreen happened. Even people who were ignoring the problem at other colleges and universities looked at the absurdity of what happened at Evergreen and many of them said, well, all right. That was pretty over the top. But they dismissed it, right? Now, as they were dismissing it, I was being invited to speak all over the world, in fact, about what had happened to me. And I was always invited to speak on the free speech crisis on college campuses. And every time I was invited, I told them, it's not a free speech crisis on college campuses. Speech is impeded as a last resort, and it's only on college campuses because that's where the battle is taking place first. This is gonna spill out into society. It's gonna spill out everywhere, into government. It's gonna spill out (coughs) into the courts. It's gonna spill out into the market. And people, they didn't think so. And then it happened, right? The BLM riots took the Evergreen experience and spread it all over the place, and it was suddenly everywhere. And lots of people did acknowledge, actually, you know what? He was right about that. That's weird. How did he know? Well, I knew because I had lived it close up, and I knew what it was, and I knew that you can't have people learning this ideology in college and then not have them carry it with them when they graduate right? It was going everywhere. It, it happened faster than I expected it to, but uh, it wasn't hard to see that it was going to happen. But the final thing is that, okay, so it went from college campuses, maybe a minority of college campuses, it then globalized and became about every interaction in society, and then it switched topics. And this is the thing that I think people haven't figured out yet, is that much of what is going on surrounding our response to the pandemic is actually exactly like wokeism in its mechanism. The topic is totally different, but the cancel culture, right, the, the demonization, it is that same witch-hunting phenomenon. And the weird part, the part that really shocks me to my core, is that many people who understood the danger of wokeism when the topic was race and sex and gender have completely misunderstood the pandemic and what's taking place. And they have become what I call medically woke. And they are now witch hunting and canceling and doing all of that stuff. And so what we've unearthed is that this has now become a a kind of perpetual state of war that we exist in. And it is preventing us from doing the obvious thing that we must do, which is get pointed in the same direction and continue to fix the flaws in the civilization that we built, which is deeply flawed but highly successful, to democratize the gains of that system so that they are something like fairly distributed. Those are honorable, worthy projects, and we are missing the boat. We are incinerating the goose that lays the golden eggs rather than democratizing the distribution of eggs. and it couldn't possibly be more insane.
0: Right. And I did want to touch on this and I'm trying to figure out how to go about it because my channel already is hated by the algorithm because I use a lot of of realism. Um, I just gave up on being monetized. It lasted about four days Um, and they always have some way. But regardless, I think what I would point out is that I find it interesting. When did this issue become right versus left? And it's almost confusing because... They, they don't like the origins of the vaccine. It's being almost associated with Biden. And I'm like, but he's not the one who got this done, which is why now they're talking to Trump. And he's trying to tell people, no, go ahead and take this thing. Yep. it's you know, and, and whether or not that means you should or shouldn't is what is not what I'm getting into. It more has to do with now the right is confused because their hero is not saying the same thing that is currently being said in the right. And that's what I was kind of just, you know, looking, once again, as a, a left-leaning independent, you know, going, wait a second, what are you guys upset about? Like, he was pushing for this because he was trying to protect capitalism in the United States. And he's the one who wanted you guys to take this thing because he didn't want to be locked down, whether he was right or wrong. is it? But it, it's an example, I guess, of what I mean about how the tribalism can suddenly change reality right there in front of them. And I think the right has come to a point where they don't think that happens to them. That only happens to the left. I'm like, no, here's an example <laughs> So go ahead.
1: Well, there's a tremendous amount of hope potentially in in the observation you've just made because Joe Biden is not the answer to any known problem. Right. Trump, unfortunately, is the answer to exactly one known problem. He was the answer to the duopoly problem. He proved it could be beaten. He's very dangerous, though, because of you know, his personal idiosyncrasies, right? And so the fact that he did successfully beat the duopoly caused a lot of interest in him over on the right um, because he actually, you know, was not under control. But I always looked at it like he was a third crime family muscling in on the action of the two established crime families and you know at one level that could be entertaining but again it's not a it's not really a solution to anything important right it's just a different you know you're paying protection to someone new and anyway my point would be the most vibrant place politically i thought for the years following the evergreen meltdown was the place where the anti-woke left and the center-right gathered around a shared awareness that nothing was making sense. Right. Right, that the DNC, the blue team, was upending the natural positive functioning of civilization in pursuit, It said, of some sort of fantasy of equity, but nonsensical one and so anyway the the anti-woke left and the center right were effectively rallying to protect liberal principles that were won by past generations of liberals and that was actually quite a good thing but there was also a lot of people on the right who were just reflexively anti-blue because they could see the defects of the dnc vision of the world but they were blind to the defects of uh the the MAGA world. Right. So to, to have Trump misplay his cards with respect to the vaccines, because he wants credit for them. Maybe he even deserves credit for them. Right. I don't think credit for them is a positive thing, but maybe he wants it. And that's waking people up. I think the best hope we have <clears throat> is that a coalition of, dissidents on the left and the right realize what is at stake, where we are headed, and effectively engineers a, a partnership. I mean, you know, during the last election, I uh, advanced the Unity 2020 proposal, which was a structural proposal to unify uh, people center-left and center-right uh, in a I'll government that, by the way. The coalition. But my point is, look, that's structurally what we have to do no matter what, no matter whose plan it is. Um, And if we do that, I mean, this, this actually leads me to the other thing I wanted to recover from the early part of this conversation. Sure. I now find myself in, I mean, not only partnership, but friendship with people on the right who 15 or 20 years ago, I would have thought of, you know, I really like the idea of enemies, but I would have thought of them as very much the opposing force. And... What I find is that they're not, and the reason that they're not is worth pondering. And I would argue, given the right circumstances, given circumstances that are perilous enough, you can put aside almost any difference, right? What do Tucker Carlson and I have to differ over? At the moment, we both know that the country is way off track and it's headed into extremely dangerous circumstances. Right. Why would I want to battle him over what level of investment we should be publicly making in you know, education when you know, the ship is on fire? So the point is, it is natural. All of the things that people say about, I think left and right is no longer a useful distinction. Maybe yes, maybe no. But it's not really that it's no longer a useful distinction. It's that things are so bad that it is not operative at this moment because we have much higher priorities, right? The ship is on fire. Arguing about what the best color for it is is absurd. Absolutely. Um, And so that's where we are. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of delightful to find that there are good people across the political spectrum that they are all having the same experience of partnering with people they never expected to want to talk to. And, you know, it's liberating. So let's lean into it.
0: And what's funny about that, I made a meme about this specifically called Alt Center, which is a parody on Alt Life and Alt Right, because we're now at a point where doing what you and I are doing right now is extreme. Now you and I are extremists. You know, how dare us? You know, like that's, it's the same thing, and Derek Jensen loved the same thing because he's a long time again left leaning activist who sees this as like we can't even this is silly we can't do this, you know. Um, and, and I think that it's important also though that if if anything there needs to be a home for people who do still feel uh, you know left on a lot of things to be able to interact with each other because one of the things I commonly in, interact with is that people who like my work um, because I call out the left a lot, um, they will. They will privately contact me and say thank you so much for your work on, say, the Kyle Rittenhouse documentary I made, um, because I didn't know what to think about that, and then after I watched your critical analysis, I totally get it now. You know, they but they have to do it privately because if not, the Inquisition is coming knocking. You know, and I think, yeah. you know, what are we going to do to fight it? Well, there's not, you know, and it's funny is like. Um, In order to fight it, first of all, we have to be able to gather somewhere essentially and share ideas and have an identifier. Well, at the same time, also, however, not throwing up another wall to talk to reasonable people on the right. I think like one of my favorite, I guess, as close to mainstream media in its presentation that I like is uh, Crystal and Sager on Breaking Points and previously on The Hill um, Rising Show because he's a Republican and she's a Democrat and, you know, officially, one's a progressive, and the other one, I guess, is what's called a populist Republican, who's, yes, I'm a capitalist, yes, I'm a Republican, but I still care about people, you know, and then the two of them present news, and ironically, they agree on a lot more than they don't, and that's something that I think that people have forgotten is possible, you know, and so something that Derek Jensen and I talked about in our conversations was that the left itself needs to hold itself accountable, you know, for just absolute insanity that's going on, and eventually, it's going to come down to, I think, like, what John McWhorter said when he was talking about his new book was like, eventually people just need to stand up to them and be like, this has to stop. We, we're we not going to do this anymore. No, I'm not racist. And no, I don't care if you think I am, you know, for your ridiculous illogical reason, you know? Um, and I think that there there needs to be some way, I guess, for them to reach out. That's why like Yang's, Andrew Yang's work, I'm I'm hoping goes somewhere too, with trying to find sensible people um, you know, to, to work together towards like what you were doing with your unity proposal. And I think that, um, the alt center meme should be something that we joke about consistently because at the end of the day, as silly as this is, people say, well, why is your audience so right-leaning? And I'll tell you why. The reason is, is that if I go over there and say, Hey, you know, we don't agree on a lot of things, but you know, I do agree with you about these things. They're fine with that. If you show up at Evergreen State College and do that, they're going to like effectively try to, you know, socially kill you. Uh And that's only because they can't get away with physically killing you yet. You know, that's the direction that it has. And that's why I'm I'm so glad that this conversation happened. There's another moment when you were talking with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan that I took and I clipped out. And unfortunately, I need to find it again. But whether you guys kind of recognized, because I would say you lean left and Jordan leans kind of right. And then Joe is Joe. But you're like, you know, well, we have to have a certain degree of safety nets. And even Jordan agrees with that, or, you know, because our capitalism just, you can fall through the cracks and then you're at this bottom. When I was at Occupy, there were a lot of former blue collar conservatives there. It wasn't just like hippie kids. And like, you know, a lot of them literally were former GM workers. I mean, we're in Detroit, you know, or Flint, you know, and a lot of them, like, they did everything you're supposed to do. They started new businesses, they got educated, and there was still nowhere for them. And that was the thing I would say I would bring up next. It's just this weird thing that's going on is that people will get driven, right? Like think that they have to abandon a bunch of other ideas that they have because they don't like wokeism. So like, so you don't like woke nonsense. So therefore now you've abandoned your views on healthcare or whatever. It was like, those things don't have anything in common, but it comes back to that package. I was telling you earlier in those packages, you could be pro gun, but pro welfare you know, but we're conditioned to believe that you can't do those things. I guess um, kind of vomited a little bit there, but go ahead.
1: No, no, that's great. Um, yeah, the, the, the idea that this uh, slate of things that naturally go together that obviously don't naturally go together is the indication that you need to, you need to do a, a better work to figure out what you believe, and you have to stop persecuting people for uh, dissenting on some view. Right? Or dehumanizing them, even. Right, that's what we should be doing. But look, again, I think this comes down to an issue of do you have the toolkit to have the conversation, right? Is Jordan Peterson uh, a conservative and am I a liberal and does that mean that, um, you know, I want to go in an opposite direction from him? No, this is simple. It's a question of tension between two values, both of which, if they are the only value, collapse. Right? Progressives want to solve problems. If you go around trying to solve every problem, then you will destabilize all of the solutions that have worked. Right, Progressivism on its own is a self-destructive dead end. Conservatism on its own ossifies and it doesn't accomplish anything. What you want is, <coughs> is a system that knows when it needs to make progress and it knows when it needs to resist progress. And it is natural for some of us, I am probably better at knowing what problems might be solved that we haven't solved yet. Maybe that's why I'm a progressive, is that I'm actually, I've got an eye for it, right? Right. Why is Jordan a conservative? Well, maybe he's got an eye for the way that liberals tend to miss the unintended consequences they're about to invite. And so, you know, I, I often say, um, in an effort to get people to to wake up to this, that I am a liberal, I'm a radical, that wants to live in a world so good that I get to be a conservative. And the point is, look, if you think progress is the thing to pursue no matter what, then you're going to take a perfectly working system and you're going to sabotage it in an effort to make it better, right? You don't want to be that person. You're pursuing a world. You probably will never see it. But if you did land there, you should become a conservative. You should conserve it against anybody who wants to do anything that might upend it. And if we start thinking in those terms, and the point is I don't want anybody who thinks their side should govern. I want people who understand that the, the, the dynamic nature of the system, its, its ability to function is dependent on properly navigating the tension between competing values, right? It is the tension that puts the dynamism in the system. And we are its stewards. So, you know, there's a reason that I can sit down with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, and we can disagree over things, but there's no tension. And it's because we all want the same thing. We all want a nation and a world that works, right? We want a nation and a world that is fair, that is decent, that that rewards people who contribute to the world. Who wouldn't want that? And so the point is there's nothing really to disagree with about that. There's a lot to disagree with about where we are in history, and what we might do next, and what might happen if we attempt it, right? But people who like each other can very easily have that discussion because they know that in the end, look, if Jordan Peterson is right about something and I'm wrong about it, I want him to win the argument. Why? Because we're trying to get to the same place. If he's right, then that means his version of that story is one that will get us closer to the place we both want to go, right? So um, anyway... The divisions that you have described here several times, they are unnatural and they are certainly unproductive. And if people can get over them and stop thinking about how defective their detractors are. Now, some of your detractors probably are defective. There's some bad people out there. But most of the people you disagree with aren't that way, right? They've just seen something very, very different, and you're probably both wrong. And if you could figure out how to talk about it productively, you'd both walk out smarter. So that's what we should be doing.
0: I would agree. And I think that um, it's an interesting point. And that was one of the reasons why I brought up why is the vaccine thing right versus left now to kind of demonstrate to my right-leaning audience, and and they listen, was about the fact that don't just fall in line with whatever you see on Fox News, because, for example, the police brutality issue. I brought up that why is this right versus left? You guys don't remember Ruby Ridge? You don't remember Waco? And then they suddenly all went, oh, wow i'm like yeah wow (laughs) and there's a moment during the waco massacre where they literally put rodney king we understand up on their wall with a sheet you know as a kind of a message to everybody that they understood you know and that really bridged some gaps and i think that we've been told no 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 you need to line up with your tribe you know you need to you know whatever it is that we don't like you need to not like it too and there's an analogy i would share with you that i also shared with derek and he liked it i shared with everybody Politics has become like sixth grade volleyball in gym class. Maybe the the teacher mistakenly calls a point for your team, but and you know that it was the ball was out. But you're like, no, 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 we're we're good, we're good. And if anybody on your team says anything, you go, shut up, man, shut up. Even though you know it's false. It, that that's the part where you can't have any society if, if that's how things yeah. are going to be.
1: Right. No, we have to agree that the most important thing is that society work. And you know, the, the, I I don't know how old you are. How old are you? 45. You're 45. Okay. So I I'm 52 and I feel like I am just barely old enough to consciously remember a world in which governance functioned. It didn't function well, but it functioned. And that that quickly turned around and this became something very different. But there used to be an idea called the Loyal Opposition. And the Loyal Opposition were people who their job was to hold your feet to the fire, so that if you're a progressive, that you did it right. And actually, you know what? Tucker Carlson, he has been doing this job, right? I think he's actually annoyed at liberals for falling down on the job, right? And he's weirdly, he's one of the few people who talks about class warfare, and, you know, corporate greed and its effect on politics. So anyway, the loyal opposition is what we need, right? And when you're not in power, that's your job, the loyal opposition, right? You should want the the society to function, you don't want to tear it down, you want it to function well, you should want to fix it. And when the other side's in power, then your job is to make sure that they don't uh, put one over on us. Um, But... We've, we've gotten into this, this team mentality, which is mind numbing and so, so utterly wasteful. Um, and you know, I hope people wake up quickly because we don't, we don't have a lot of time.
0: Right. And that's one of the reasons why I focus so heavily on trying to get people to think and be able to entertain ideas that they don't necessarily agree with all the time and not dehumanize people solely for not being on the same side of an issue. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that's so much more important. Um, and it's, it's not just about whether or not, and unfortunately I think it's actually the goal of some of these people, particularly, um, really shallow minded anarchists who literally just think, oh, that's the goal. We need to unravel society and what they don't, I, I think it's like when I deal with, um, police brutality, people who want to defund or abolish the police, I grew up in the ghetto and I'm like, you guys don't seem to get it. Like, they're not even the authority there. Like, the cops in those neighborhoods, you might have an hour or so before they even show up. I'm like, that, that's, you know, and Derek pointed that out was that, you know, because he had a guy on his, like, you know, his show at one point that was an expert on saying he wanted to get rid of police. But he pointed out that the police are not even the most well-organized authoritarian structure in the ghetto. It's not, and they have some really ignorant ideas about how it would work. You know, I mean, one point that I, because like when the, I don't know if you followed what happened at the Wii spa, um, but I work, I work with a a lady named Mary Todd, whose job it is essentially for her anyway, is to expose what Antifa is up to. And so a lot of stuff that's going on at the Wii spa, you know, um, Antifa shows up and starts beating up soccer moms, you know, over the issue of trans rights. But, like, literally, in the same city of LA in MacArthur Park, MS 13 murders trans people and beats them brutally. But Antifa's not there. Mm-hmm. They don't go do anything about that. And I think it's because they know it's going to be vastly different than quote unquote fighting cops who've been ordered not to shoot them. It's going to be vastly different you know, then fighting, you know, uh, even just other right wingers who are showing up a pepper spray. It's going to be a very different environment. And they're not. And I brought that up <laughs> once in an Antifa forum
1: and they banned you immediately because <laughs> they don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, it's not going to be as as Instagram friendly. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I can I can certainly understand why they would shy away from that fight, preferring uh, more symbolic stuff. But damn, you know, look, the the abolish the police thing is a great way to just see see the problem, right? Yes, we all know there are lots of bad cops. Cops commit a lot of crime. It's very hard to prosecute bad cops. But imagining then that the crime is cop-based and that in the absence of the cops that you'd have less crime imagines uh, imagines that you know how much crime there would be in their absence. And you right. don't. Right, And so this this should be obvious. It should take about three minutes. Anybody who thinks, oh, my God, the police are out of control. Um, If we do away with them, society will be better, should just simply focus on the question of how do I know how much crime isn't happening because the cops do eventually come when you call them. And if we stop doing that, how much crime there will therefore be. And, you know, of course, the crime wave that we've seen since the BLM riots, as we, you know, Reduced funding for police across the country tells the tale, right? The, so again, the answer is, yeah, bad cops suck. let's fix let's fix that problem. But abolishing the cops is just an insane uh, proposal based on a misunderstanding of what the problem is and why.
0: A lot of them have some really unrealistic views. Like um, I have a friend who's a black gentleman who attends a lot of these riots and he or in, and just protests and rallies and listens to them talk. And I said, what kind of people do you tend to run into on to abolish the police? He says, well, they tend to come in two varieties. And I said, well, what are they? He said, one, people who are utterly naive about crime, who have no idea what they're talking about, never been shot at. They, you know, he's like, they've literally been told absurd things like that. There's just as much crime in the quote unquote white neighborhoods, but but they're under policed. Like they just, he's like, they have no idea. Like, he's like, they've never even, he's like, they, what did he say? He said, I think, he says, they think they know the hood because they may have driven through my neighborhood once to go to a rock concert or a club. And I said, what are the other group of people? And he's like, criminals. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, as in people I grew up with who are lifelong criminals, of course, they like that idea. And then he pointed out, because he watches my videos, he's like, has it ever occurred to you when you were researching your written house documentary that the, the, four people he randomly ran into that led to that incident were all lifelong criminals. You know, he's like, of course they want to abolish the police, yeah, you know, I sure do. right. And that's, so it's, it was kind of mind blowing and I kind of already suspected it, but he just confirmed it because, because he's black and quiet, they'll say a lot of things in front of him that they won't necessarily say in front of other activists. And it it broke down what I kind of already suspected is that a lot of these kids have no idea what they're talking about. Like they don't get it. When, in, in an Antifa forum, they tried to argue because I, I literally say to them, I'm like, what are you going to do when the cartel shows up? Because they're already, by the way, paying attention to these places with abolished police. Those FBI's already found, for example, they've taken special interest in Portland and stuff because they know they'll be able to get away with a lot more. And they said, well, what do you think we're going to do? Do you think us Antifa militants are just going to stand down? I'm like, no, I think what's going to happen is you're going to get your butts kicked because those people cut people's heads off. <laughs> I'm like, it was like, you, you guys, you don't get it.
1: Yep. No, it's, it's absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, the same dynamic, you know, I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but the same go dynamic. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Business. I'm actually
0: not against talking about it as saying, let's, you know, the funny thing is everybody's talking. Just
1: go ahead and say it. What yeah, everybody on? is talking about it. Some of us take more crap over it. But um, but the same thing is going down in public health COVID space, right? right. It's like this pandemic has turned so many otherwise intelligent people into useful idiots of pharma, right? right, And people have no idea because frankly, they don't have enough experience with how academic science works. It's just a black box, right? And it seems like, oh, it, it must be about the data and it must be about peer review. And as long as I stick to people who claim to be speaking for those two things, how wrong could I go? And it's like, you have no idea how wrong you could go because you don't understand how good pharma is at this game. Pharma didn't start playing this game with COVID. Pharma has been practicing this game. It has been perfecting its game. It has been getting its tentacles inside your governmental regulatory apparatus for decades. Right? It's playing us like a violin. And people cannot see it. Right? Right? Just as they cannot see, oh, yeah, it is the criminals who want us to abolish the police. And of course they would. Right. right. Same, same deal.
0: And that's the the thing about it that also from because like leftist friends of mine are like, why are you, you know, hesitating on vaccines and stuff? I'm like, when did you guys all start deciding that Big Pharma was your friend? Right. Like, what the hell? Take me back eight years ago at the Occupy camp. We hated
1: Big Pharma. What are <laughs> What is with you people? Like <laughs> three years ago three years ago every single person that i knew at any level of depth would have been like oh yeah pharma corruption of course right they they could have listed a number of things they suspected pharma were doing right diagnosing people with diseases that aren't really diseases extending the definition so they can prescribe more pills not telling us about the danger of the pills everybody knew right and then suddenly you know I, i i have tried to ask people on twitter i've tried to run polls and things and just say, okay, what percentage of our response to the pandemic do you think is the result of pharma corruption? You know, is it zero? If you think it's zero, how? why would it be? And if it isn't zero, then isn't it incumbent on you to start figuring which parts of what we're hearing are actually reliable and which parts are actually us doing self-harm because it's profitable for these corporations? And somehow it just doesn't even... It doesn't click. You're not allowed to talk about pharma corruption in the context of COVID for reasons that are utterly mysterious to me because it couldn't possibly be more relevant.
0: Well, right. So we all said thalidomide was bad, but this isn't. This this could never be. Couldn't possibly be. And that's actually, I mean, I guess now that we're going down the rabbit hole a little bit, I actually unsubscribed to Sam Harris because of what he said about you specifically.
1: (laughs) I haven't unsubscribed.
0: Well, I... Because I paid for it occasionally I'll still listen, but I do too. But the thing is it's unfortunate because I think he's also kind of a, a left leaning guy who's not absolutely nuts. But like his he compares you to a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. Yes, he does. And then he brings on an expert to try to argue with you. And even the expert said, for example, Ivermectin could work. We don't have enough information. And I was like, so in other words, guy the guy you he brings on supposedly to argue with you even he kind of acknowledges that we can't say that this can't possibly work. And he also made similar uncomfortable comments about whether or not natural immunity is enough.
1: Yes, well, and that very expert who I must say uh, says an awful lot of things that are perfectly inconsistent with uh, what I believe is an informed understanding of the dynamics of the the epidemic and the pathogen in question, Eric Topol. But Eric Topol is also literally... The boss of Christian Anderson, who is the scientist who effectively led the cover up of the lab leak, right? This is the scientist who behind closed doors in his email said the genome of this virus looks inconsistent with natural evolution and then publishes a paper claiming that natural origin is the obvious right answer and that anything else is a conspiracy theory. Right? Eric Toll right. is his boss, and Sam Harris is putting him on to talk about our public health response. And frankly, okay, that was months ago, but we've had a lot of time now to look at how effective the public health response is. And you know, they will, of course, blame the quote-unquote unvaccinated for the failure of it, but it obviously isn't the unvaccinated. You can look at Gibraltar, which has more than 100% vaccination rate more than 100% because they vaccinate people who who come to Gibraltar for the day, right? Right. They haven't controlled the pandemic. The vaccines are incapable of it. And if you think about what you know about vaccines in general, just your own basic knowledge from what you've experienced, you can tell these vaccines are are garbage, right? What vaccine requires you to be revaccinated every six months? Right. Right. What vaccine doesn't stop... Uh, contracting the disease or transmitting it doesn't reduce viral load, right? This is obviously, I mean, look, I'm not arguing that they are not technologically impressive. They are, but they're prototypes, right? This is not ready for prime time. And the idea that we are to be denied every single other tool to control covid That we will be propagandized into believing that all of the drugs that we have discovered that actually do work, if given early, don't work. And what's more, we're not going to be allowed to use them in order that we have only one tool, no matter how feeble that tool is. This is nonsense. And you know what? It just so happens to be exactly the story that you would tell if you were pharma trying to sell a product that wasn't any good. You would drive every other product off the market and you would get government to wag its finger at people who didn't want the product. You would get government to buy the product for them. Right. This is this is pharma's wet dream.
0: Right. Exactly. And that's something that everybody from my generation of the left would absolutely understand. You know, like these companies are not your friends. You know, like thalidomide is just one of the more extreme ones. It's like how many times I, I often joke with people about this, these commercials they list the, the side effects of whatever it is that they're doing. And like one of them can literally say, you know, if you, if you've experienced, you know, dry mouth, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, 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 or death, stop taking this. Like as in death <laughs> can be a reason to stop taking this. I'm like, well, they're probably motivated to stop taking it Yeah, when they're dead. <laughs> you know, I was like, you guys don't understand that these people like are playing around like, and that's the reason why it exists. Like, you know, kind of a, uh, a mild sideshow, but, My daughter is a wrestler or was, she can, she sustained a severe concussion and they don't really understand concussions. So the way they treated my son's concussion was drastically different than the way they treated hers in a span of like five months of difference at the exact same clinic. And now she has essentially permanent concussion symptoms. And I'm almost entirely confident that it's because they did stuff that was just, even some doctors I talk to now are like, what? They did what? You know, for example, just to give you the mild specifics without getting too far, my son was told no video games, no homework, just chill out. Don't do anything for like a month. He completely recovered zero symptoms. My daughter was told, no, no, Uh, homework's okay. Video games are okay. Screen time's okay. And we're going to do all of these exercises to intentionally cause your symptoms in the understanding that if we do this, eventually your symptoms will come longer and longer and longer away from when we do these things. So I guess they think like they're desensitizing you or something to this. That's what they did to her. I can't prove that that's wrong. And unfortunately, I think the truth is, is that in many cases, those doctors don't even know. So now they're conducting active experiments on people with this condition. And I think they've literally ruined her life. She's since developed neurological problems. She, uh, has a horrible sleep disorder. Uh, her, she developed juvenile fibromyalgia, which is a extremely rare. And the only way to treat it is to give her drugs that kids are not supposed to have, you know? Um, and these are all examples of things that I think go on in the medical industry on a regular basis. And I, and I don't The thing is I'm not an anti-doctor person, but at the same time, you know, there was no outlet for me to discuss that with anybody. I couldn't say what's going on here. Like that doesn't sound right. And I even, my initial reaction to the doctor was like, are you nuts? Like, there, there's no way because it's so different than what we just did, like literally six months ago, you know, um, and I think that this is similar to that. I, I think that they're they're playing around. And in addition to that, it's easier to forget that, well, why wouldn't they have an incentive to say you need to take this thing five times?
1: Right. And um you know, this is the thing people probably don't know how I ended up on the side of this issue that I did. But Heather and I, when the pandemic oh. began, uh, we um, basically took a studio that we had offsite and built it into our house so that we would have a place to to broadcast from not knowing what lockdown was going to look like or how long it would last and we started doing live streams every week and because we're biologists and therefore we're evolutionary biologists so we have a toolkit that is relevant to things like pandemics and viruses um, we just started looking at the evidence of what the thing was and figuring out what it implied about how you might improve your odds against it right so we Basically, we're trying to figure out how to go into the world to source food and not get the dis- the disease. And, you know, at first, everybody thought it was transmitted on surfaces. And anyway, our model for how the thing worked got better and better. And people really uh, appreciated l- watching us, you know, show our work about how we got to various, you know, recommendations of how to, how to deal with it. But the point was, at the point the vaccines came out, it was initially... Very alarming, because we could look at what they were saying the nature of the vaccines was. We could look at the technology involved, and we knew just how novel they were. And then we could look at them saying how safe they were. And the answer is, I can tell you with 100% certainty that you don't know they're safe. You couldn't possibly, because the point is, it's a novel technology. You're injecting it into... complex system and it's actually you're interfacing with three separate complex systems you're interfacing with an immune system which is a complex system inside of a person which is a complex system inside of a society with a pandemic which is a complex system and so you don't know what's going to happen the nature of complex systems is there there are cascading effects that you can't predict and so what you can say at best is we have not detected harm in a short-term test you couldn't possibly know what the long-term implications are if the things only existed for months. And so when they were saying, oh, these things are very safe, we were saying, sorry, you can't know that. You know, At 10 years, you'll know how safe they are over a 10-year period if you collect the data. If you don't, you won't even know that. And the point was, so we were waiting for something in terms of very long-term side effects to emerge. And we were delaying our own vaccination because the longer you wait, the more likely you are to detect a signal that something is off. And then, of course, signals did start emerging. And that was a wake-up call because the reaction to the obvious evidence that there was quite a bit of harm was not to say, well, okay, there's quite a bit of harm. Let's compare it to how much good these things are doing and see if it still makes sense. The answer was, no, it's perfectly safe. Any impression you have that it isn't is false. And if you insist it isn't false because it's based on evidence, you're a bad person and you're actually causing the pandemic and you're dirty. And it's like, oh, wait, that wasn't a very long trip before we got to these tropes that are usually showing up right before a genocide, right? You're you're calling people dirty for noticing things. Um, so in any case, that experience of hearing them tell us that these things were safe when you could be absolutely certain that wasn't true that causing us to watch carefully and see well what how harmful are they right does a signal of harm show up and then to watch signals of harm be uh just absolutely uh denied and uh people who point to them silenced uh really was a wake-up call
0: Right. And that's, you know, these are all things that I think kind of point back to what the core of this conversation was about, which is like, for example, the, when I did the Kyle Rittenhouse documentary, I went into that kind of under the assumption that somebody probably went crazy and shot a lot of people. And what was fresh in my mind was that black lives matter activists had just kicked a guy in the head, you know, like in Portland, like right before that brutally. And I was like, eventually somebody's going to get sick of this and they're going to shoot someone. So what, that's what started my project. Once I started to get into it, what, this is why this is relevant, I promise. Is that people had radically untrue beliefs about what took place. Like, whether you believe he should have nor should not have done it, they still have, like, and they still, to this day, I'm still informing people cross state lines is nonsense. Whether or not he crossed state lines with a gun is not even in question anymore. They actually got rid of that in court, like, months and months and months ago. Like, you guys are still talking about this. And then I think one of the eye opening moments for me beyond anything else about how bad the media was for this sort of thing was. People going on Twitter and going, wait, he didn't shoot any black people? <laughs> yeah. Like, like I was like, what the hell? Like, because I just stopped. I almost never watch mainstream media unless it's for a very specific reason. I didn't realize just how bad it had gotten. And then I turn on MSNBC and went, oh, my goodness, this is bad. You know, and that, I think, plays into what you're saying, because the same thing is going on when it comes to conversations about that issue. And you can't even have a reasonable conversation about it. And people do get very personal about it, just like everything else. You know, I just avoid talking about it with certain friends of mine, mostly because, and I'm not usually someone who's willing to do that, but it just, if my friendship with somebody is important enough, I go, they're not going to get it. Uh, Maybe a few years from now, maybe they'll get it, but at this point, it just wouldn't be productive. And then that's, again, something I reserve only for very close personal friends of mine. Like for my audience, I tell them straight up, it's okay if you don't agree with me. I'm going to say what I feel about this issue. And I want my audience to be a group of people who can say, This is what I feel about this. It's okay if you don't agree with me. That's what I think needs to happen more.
1: Well, I will point out that there was a, this has now happened several times, but people will remember when the concept of horse dewormer suddenly showed up in their experience. And the thing is, for those of us who were talking about early treatment and ivermectin and the promise that it had for controlling the pandemic and for, uh, managing the disease and people who had contracted it. There was a week in which suddenly every screen erupted in the claim that what we were talking about was horse dewormer, that it was dangerous and people were ending up in the hospital, that gunshot victims were being denied care because there were so many overdoses. Right, It was all of this. If you were looking at the Ivermectin subreddit, you watched the subreddit descend into madness as I don't know how many trolls, hundreds, thousands of trolls began posting at first utter nonsense and then really grotesque anime cartoons. You right. know. Um, it, and the point was this, if you were paying attention to the question of ivermectin, this looked so unnatural, right? It had to be coordinated, and there was just a question like, okay, they decided to derail ivermectin. There was a moment at which they pushed go on something, some sort of an initiative to uh, derail it by demonizing people who were talking about it, um, mocking them, putting false stories in the press about overdoses, um, right? It was obviously a campaign. Right, it implied right. a PowerPoint presentation. Right, there was a PowerPoint presentation in which somebody must have said, "Here's how we're going to deal with the ivermectin problem." Okay, first of all, um, you know, people are—they uh, need to have driven out of their minds the idea that this is a Nobel Prize-winning drug that is as safe as any medicine that we have available to us. Right, they need to see it as reckless. They need to see it as backward, and it needs to be associated with things that are grotesque, right? So anyway, obviously, I've never seen that PowerPoint presentation, but I certainly saw the outgrowth of it. And if you weren't paying attention to ivermectin, if ivermectin was some loose concept, maybe you'd never heard of it, maybe you'd heard of it in passing somewhere, then you only caught a glimpse of that campaign, and you thought what you were seeing was news, or you thought what you were seeing was the smart people ridiculing the dumb people who just didn't get it, right? And those two things looked very different, right? It was unmistakable that there was some well-financed something that decided this is the week we do away with this from the public mind, right? This is the week we make this impossible uh, to discuss. And once you understand, okay, there's a force out there. It's doing that. Some people actually, you know, I mean, how many people know what the Trusted News Initiative is or a GAVI, right? These are our organizations that, you know, partner government with pharma, with big tech. Right. And that's where these things come from. But if you're not paying close attention, you just think, oh, finally, you know, what's happened is the absurdity of people who are talking about this remedy that doesn't work has finally uh you know reached a point where everybody knows it's a joke
0: right and that's it's like weapons of mass destruction in iraq it completely yeah. reminds me of the exact same energy and i play a video specifically of watching because ironically now all of those people are somehow becoming in fashion again it's cool to be a cheney and it's cool to be <laughs> yeah. rumsfeld we need to talk about like, what is wrong with you people and then as soon as Bush came out against Trump in favor of Biden. Everybody was like, oh, Bush is cool now. I'm like, no, that's actually why I'm definitely never, ever going to vote for Biden. Um, you know, But the point is, is that people are not aware that they can be manipulated in this way, and it, it, they always kind of distance these kinds of huge hoax kind of things that they do in just enough propensity so that people forget the last one. you know. And I would agree with you wholeheartedly there. Um, and I want to say that I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. Please keep doing what you're doing. And there was an analogy that popped into my head once when watching the evergreen thing was it reminded me of the original star Wars film, because there's a moment where Vader's about to kill Obi-Wan. And he said, you can strike me down, but I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And I think that's what happened to you. I think it's what happened to Jordan Peterson. And I think it's what's happened to a lot of people. The algorithm is careful to try to prevent
1: more people like you from existing, (laughs) so it's it's the whole reason right if if you if you if you punish people publicly enough then the next person who would do it thinks better right right and so the point is i'm not fooled by what's said about me how could i be right Right. the point isn't to fool me the point is to fool you right
0: and so i guess um first of all i want you to take a moment and tell everybody about your work so that they can get an opportunity to check out your channel i mean Obviously my subscriber list is considerably smaller than yours at this stage. I, I used to have a big podcast, but I, I gave it up because I was focusing on my kids when they wanted to get into sports. Um, you know, But tell them first of all about what, why should they go to the Dark, Dark Horse podcast and what are they gonna see when they get there?
1: Uh, well, the Dark Horse podcast is an odd phenomenon. Um, my wife and I do live streams uh, generally on Saturday. They're incredibly popular, surprise to us, but it's, It's wonderfully uh, rewarding work. We uh, joke around and talk about all kinds of stuff. There's lots of talk about COVID. Sometimes we talk about animals and evolution and uh, politics and, you know, whatever's on our minds. And uh, I don't really know why people like it. I suspect it's because we uh, show our work. When we make errors, we go back and correct them. And people have come to trust us because, uh, I don't know, if you were gonna fake something, it wouldn't be us. So, you know, we're authentic and I think it shows. Uh, We've written a book, The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide, excuse me, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. It is a New York Times bestseller. People are really enjoying it. They are passing it around and discussing it, which suggests that they're actually reading it, which I think is great. you can find me on Twitter at Brett Weinstein. Brett has one T. There is a Brett Weinstein with two Ts, and I apologize to him for all of the uh, stray insults that come his way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he does get them quite a bit. right? But, um, yeah, I maybe maybe that's it for the moment.
0: No, for sure. Thank you very much. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk to you briefly off the air. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, First of all, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And again, if you haven't checked out Brett's work, you really should. Um, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. If this is your first time checking me out, you can check out my archives. Um, I've linked my website multiple times. It's really just kind of a link website so that you can find me on the various platforms. Um, I frequently run into little hijinks um, wherein YouTube will find ways to make it difficult to find some of my better stuff. Um, I just did a stream, for example, on why people don't want to work. And in that stream, I revealed some insider information about what it was like. And this is relevant to you, too, Brett, um, about what it was like to be a, quote unquote, essential worker in the beginning of the pandemic when we thought this thing was going to be super deadly. And those of us working at restaurants were told we were not allowed to wear masks and not allowed to wear gloves because it might frighten away customers. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And you know, the fact that the, some of the companies, for example, like GameStop, you know, just literally said, we're not shutting down any stores. We're not, you know, we're not going to provide you with disinfectant, you know, that's all on you. Um, and that it's difficult to find that stream. I ended up having to go like the, the Twitch version is still up if you guys want to check it out, but there's stuff that's like that. And something that you can do for me, if you can financially support me, that's neat. Um, and I'm at a point now where I'm essentially Not totally paralyzed, but parts of my back don't work anymore, so I can't stand upright. So this is it. This is what I do. You can support me on Patreon. You can support me on PayPal. um, And you can do all that also at my website. You can get to it by b-radio.us. And you can also join my social media. And the reason why I tell you that that's important is that um, YouTube subscribers of mine, in fact, the funny thing is, is I have this huge guest on. And in the time that I've had Brett on, my subscribers have gone down, and I know it's not because anybody's mad. Um, I was on Good Logics' channel. He has like 50,000 subscribers, and he and I literally watched in real time where 400 subscribers just vanished after I went on somebody's show. So somebody doesn't want me talking, um, and I think it's because I'm a reasonable leftist. We're pretty dangerous. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can like, subscribe. Please share my stuff. Subscribe to it on all of my platforms, whether it's Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, whatever. Um, and my podcast, and I'm going to upload this one as a podcast, too, because this is audio friendly. Um, you can listen to that on multiple platforms. And thank you guys very much for tuning into the radio.